Welcome to the RLSS UK podcast channel. This is episode number 10 and today's guest is Tara Dillon, Chief Exec of SimSpar. So the SimSpar is the Chartered Institute for the Management of Sports and Physical Activity and SimSpar is the professional development body for UK sport and physical activities, activity, activity sector, if I can say that. And they are committed to supporting, developing and enabling professionals and organisations to succeed and as a result, inspire our nation to becoming more active and certainly active and becoming more of an active nation is definitely a theme that a lot of people are talking about at the moment and how we come out of COVID as a more active nation. So it'd be interesting to get into Tara's head about her thoughts on that. But what I want to talk to Tara uh, specifically to start with is her journey to becoming chief exec um, and then possibly talking a little bit about how she's managed to cope and lead the organisation through a pandemic and something that um, we've all managed to, um, to to steer through over the last 12 months and beyond. So hi Tara, thank you for joining us and for just to warm you up and for the benefit of our members just tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming Chief Executive SimSpar. Well, hi, Robert. Thank you for that introduction. Because um, uh, my journey is is um, is a long one, actually. It will be, I would have been in the sector for 34 years on St. Patrick's Day this year, so a couple of months away. Um, uh, and interestingly, given that this is an RLSS podcast, I started my journey, um, my career as a lifeguard. I was at college doing my A-levels and um, I had a really, really beaten up 1967 Volkswagen Beetle um, that did about three to the gallon. So I needed a job to pay for the petrol <laughs> to get myself to college. Um, and uh, in, and I was uh, I was doing a PE course as well as my A levels and a, a BTEC in sport business and um, yeah I part of that course I did my what was then the the bronze medallion and um, yeah got myself a part time job at the Oasis Leisure Centre in Swindon back in 1987 um, and then um, much to the um, still bitter uh, chagrin of my, my dad, I then didn't bother with uni. I, I was absolutely bitten by working in a leisure centre, loved it, uh, had diff a very different career planned for myself, or at least my dad did. Um, but, you know, in those days, Rob, you know, you, you got a little, uh, you got cash in a little brown envelope, you know, and it was just almost too irresistible. And uh, back in those days as well, you know, if you worked for a local authority and you worked overtime and weekends, you got time and a half and double bubble on a Sunday and, you know, double shifts. You got it. So, um, you know, I was uh, I had cash in my hand and uh, uh, and loved it. Uh, I loved the team, the camaraderie. It enabled me to pursue what I loved, which was playing sport and um using facilities then I I did my assistant swim teachers course and then I could earn even more money and then not that I'm you know money free but when you're 17 and absolutely broke it was heavenly uh 
Then I did a gym crawl, which in those days was called Baller, which is hilarious. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know how useful it was to clients in the gym, particularly my knowledge of um, uh, the Olympic powerlifting rules. Um, but um, yeah, so then I was able to instruct in the gym and then I did a group X qual. Um, and so it went on. I just started gathering quals and really, really got bitten. Uh, and then took a full-time job there and, and the rest is history, as they say. But um, but I, I, I remember there was a real stark moment um, after particularly that first year that all my mates then went off to uni and I didn't. And I was thinking, oh, no, what, <laughs> what have I done, you know? Um, so I decided then, Robert, that I would try to do the job that they would be doing when they graduated so that it hadn't all gone to waste and that I wasn't, you know, this sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy that my dad had that I was going to be a waste of time. So, uh, which, of course, he doesn't think now. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I became quite career-focused straight away. At the very least, I should be in a supervisory post. Um, and, and for lots of people, particularly the nature of your members who were lifeguards you know I became a lifeguard supervisor then I became a duty manager and assistant manager and general manager and area manager and so it goes on um up until uh so I was in uh, local authority ops and then worked for um DC leisure which is now places for, uh, for people leisure absolutely loved it um ran multiple leisure centers around the country um and my last contract was in south London which was um, if ever you want to learn the hard way, go and run leisure centres in South London. Um, but I loved every minute of it. And then um, I was actually involved in the RLSS. I was an advisor to the board of the RLSS. So I gave an operator's perspective. I wasn't a trustee at the time. But the board um, invited me to come and, and give an operator's perspective in terms of MPLQ training, TAs, etc., um, costs, uh, capacity, potential products, etc. Um, and then uh, back in about 2007, um, I think it was 2007, oh, yeah, it was, uh, a vacancy came up at the RLSS as exec director of IQL, and I applied and got it. Um, so then, yeah, I did your job for a bit. Rob, for about, uh, when did I do that? Seven years. Loved every minute of it. We, uh, during my tenure, we we had two big goals, really. Um, one was financial, which I'm not sure I want to share here, but we hit it. But the, the other one was, I became very passionate about um, leisure centres, swimming pool safety, and it struck me at the time, looking at the stats, that the quality of the MPLQ was so good, it seemed ridiculous to me that there would ever be a drowning in a lifeguard or swimming pool. It, and at the time, the stats were around about 11 a year. And uh, so we set a goal as a team. We just said, right, by 2012, we will get that down to zero drownings. We think it's unnecessary for a drowning to occur in a lifeguarded pool with the product so good. And we did, very proud of that statistic. Um, developed the MPMQ, we integrated first aid and paediatric first aid, DFib, etc. So we grew the portfolio. And then um, 
Simspa at the time was uh, in its infancy. I think it was it was pretty much startup. Simspa was a a product of <clears throat> a merger between ISRM and IMM. For, for those of your members who've never heard of it, there were two predecessor institutes that were um, have been around actually for a hundred years now, and. Um, they were kind of forced to merge really by the then sports minister and we became ISPAL and then we became IMSPA and then SIMSPA. So now the important thing about the difference between IMSPA and SIMSPA is chartered. Um, and so the model moved massively to create a professional body for workforce, for people, which our sector had never really had, but had long wanted. You know, how can we coordinate, regulate, professionalise this sector or showcase this sector as the profession that it is? Um, and I was asked to um, work on some comments. So I held two jobs, which I would recommend against highly. So I did three days a week um, at IQL and two days a week at Simsburn. And I was asked just to look at whether or not uh, the potential for Simspa or the appetite for Simspa in the sector was genuine and whether or not a you know a vision and business plan could be created and so that's what I did then the job came up I applied for it got it and um, yes I've been there for seven years now. Cool thank you Tara fascinating and, and yes I think I'm also of an age where I remember cash in a brown envelope and didn't you used to get triple time for a bank holiday as well which was always a bonus. So. Right, look, <laughs> yeah, I did work for that one. Just um, I want to talk about Simspar and, and um, dig more deeply into that in a moment. But a couple of questions that sprang up from what you what you've just said is, uh, I'm, I'm interested to know what what's your sport. You said you're into you know you're into playing sport. Uh, I love sport as well. So what were your what were your passions? Were you an all rounder or did you focus on a particular sport? Yeah, um, hockey was my thing. Uh, swimming, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't a great swimmer. I got to county level um, when I was younger, but hockey was my passion. I absolutely loved playing hockey. And, and uh, uh, as with all sporty people, we don't want to say this out loud too often, but um, uh, injuries got the better of me. I damaged my left knee um, twice. So uh, I peaked. And then, um, yeah, the knee the knee got in the way really of getting any further. But I I played regional hockey, so it was um, yeah I loved it, absolutely loved it. A little bit of athletics, hilariously. I'm five foot four and, and and not particularly big, but for some reason I could absolutely welly a javelin. I don't know why. I think it's probably all down to technique. But now now Robert, you know it, I'm it's. Good old fashioned sedentary golf if I can ever get out on a golf course. But um that's uh, time permitting. I haven't done that for a couple of years, but yeah. Okay, that's interesting because I'm also a um a bit of a golf hacker. So um hopefully first lockdown, if you ever fancy a uh, a meeting on the course, I'll oh, be 100%. happy to oblige. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Um you, you also mentioned the infamous words bronze medallion. Um what it's a conversation that has repeated itself since I've been involved in RLSS about the heritage of bronze medallion and and um, and the history behind it. What what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that um, 
do you think it's something that we should resurrect? Is that putting you on the spot a little bit? Cool, that's a question, Robert. Um, well, look, there's two things I will say. You know, the, the legacy of the bronze medallion is, it cannot be underestimated. You know, it was, I mean, it was the only qualification available. So I'm going to sound like I'm being slightly flippant about it here. But back in the day, to qualify to lifeguard a swimming pool, the bronze medallion taught me um, how to get out of a sinking car and uh, what to do in the event of quicksand. I mean, it wasn't just that, but I remember those two bits um, because it makes me giggle. Um, however, it also taught me how to resuscitate. Uh, uh -huh. You know how to swim and rescue, and you know soaking wet clothing. Uh, it made me very fit, and there was something about the bronze medallion, Robert, that had doesn't matter if I stand poolside now. I learnt those life skills forever. You know, once I was taught them, I remembered them. Um, and interestingly, uh, about uh, fifteen twenty years ago now. Um, which is why I think the bronze medallion is important. I think, you know, as a as a public campaign for to develop a life skill that saves you forever. Um, I, I came, I was on my way back from a party actually some years ago in, in Wiltshire. And uh, me and a couple of mates who were both lifeguards as well, we came across a guy who'd been beaten up and, and uh, there was a policeman um, hopelessly trying to resuscitate this guy. And we took over, not breathing. <clears throat> No poles, got him back, and um, and we all received a police commendation for it. Um, so something I'm, you know, immensely proud of, and you know, I credit the bronze medallion, which then became the Paul Bronze, which then became the MPLQ, with that. And you know, it doesn't take much to refresh that training. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you could get the bronze medallion to every child in every school in the country, you know. Hopefully they'll never have to use it, but it's just a fabulous life skill to have. And it is the difference, you know, to that guy living and not living on that day. You know, somebody happened to hold that skill. Um, so, yeah, I would I would be a huge supporter of that, I think, Robert. I mean, I was asked that question a lot when I was there. Um, and I've got to be honest, I'm not sure what the debate is about. It, if you can get that to as many people as possible... And, you know, nowadays, uh, with the tech that we've got available to us, you know, keeping that refreshed, you know, a quick and easy view of something online, why wouldn't you do it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Right. Well, thank you for that. And um, maybe uh, watch this space might be the answer to that. But thank you. Um, OK, so you obviously moved to Simspar, which was a fantastic opportunity because it you, you said yourself it was a startup a great place to shape the future of an organization again just for the benefit of our members what what um what does Simspar do in in a, in a snapshot and um what would be the benefits to us as an organization and to to individual members um well first of all it is a membership organization um but it's its function actually is whilst the member sits at the centre of it, a large proportion of its work is wrapped around it. So the purpose of Simsbury, and I've, I've told this story a lot um, in conferences and, and stuff like that, is to 
we create a home and an umbrella for everybody who works in our sector. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, and back in 2015, the government uh, issued a, a paper that was designed to cross governments and cross parties. So it would be accepted by Tories, Labour, whoever was in, and accepted um, across parties, um, whoever's in office. And in it, amongst a whole host of things about putting sport at the heart of um, sport and physical activity at the heart of the nation and government thinking, there was an aspect in it that says that Simsper would um, develop a set of professional standards for this sector um, that are quality assured, robust. Um, and the idea was to send a message. Um, so there was another paragraph in there that, you know, sporting and government would work with Simpson to professionalise the sector. And I kind of took issue with that a little, a little bit because it kind of suggested that we needed professionalising. And, and the reality is we are an incredible profession. What we need to do is raise the profile of the brilliance of the people who work in our sector. And the footprint was massive, Robert. You know, we, we so we, we've got sort of six, almost seven now areas that we look at. So you've got fitness as we know it you know um then you've got community sport high performance sport leisure operations which is sort of your wheelhouse and your members um uh area in essence and then and then we're looking at health and and health and physical activity interventions plus we've got outdoor and children so um and the idea was that if you go back sort of 10 years or so ago um it's true to say that, so let's pick on, let's pick on, I don't know, PT. If I wanted to become a PT, um, <clears throat> my choice of qualifications was massive. I could go anywhere for a qualification. But the difference between one qualification and another was often quite stark. Um, we've got some brilliant AOs, awarding organisations and training providers in this country and, and in our sector. But because it was unregulated and there was no professional body given with any oversight, it also meant they were competing against organisations who were less scrupulous than them. And you could sort of become a PT with a Groupon voucher, they still exist, by the way, for 30 quid online in your lunch hour. So you may have spent, you know, three, four grand training yourself properly to start your career in this sector and I paid 30 quid and we both had the same status and then another problem of course is that for employers they didn't know which sort of PT they were getting because if I rocked up with my little certificate and it had fancy logos on it which often they do um, which belies the truth you know belies the actual quality uh, that sits behind that employers were then having to retrain at their expense or um, worse still, as a sector, reputationally, we were going in the wrong direction. So in one sense, we're trying to head north at a rate of knots in terms of our impact as a sector on, you know, health inequalities, on education attainment, on, you know, street crime, all sorts of things where we can have a massive impact through leisure delivery and sport delivery. Um, and making lots of noises about, you know, the fact that we as a sector represent £9.4 billion worth of savings to the NHS every year. And yet over here, we could have this kind of rather sketchy qualification. So that's why SIMPS was set up, really. It was the sector developed it. The sector asked for it and said, look, is there somewhere? It was kind of becoming a little bit Wild West. 
and we're in danger of having a sort of race to the bottom really and 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 the two you know the two things were juxtaposed we were making all those right positive noises over here about our impact and yet we weren't really having getting our house in order over in terms of quality so that's what it does you know so for every occupation amongst all of those channels that i just talked to you about sport fitness health etc uh, there's an occupation at every level in every aspect of those columns and we write a professional standard um, that says this is the minimum we would expect a qualification to host or have or deliver against that professional standard. So lifeguarding, for example, you know, RLSS enjoys a fair chunk of the market, but there are other lifeguarding providers out there um, and we we essentially occupy a neutral space for the benefit of the sector. So we say, OK, well, what are the minimum requirements for a professional lifeguard? What are the professional standards? And then RLSS and any other providers then map their qualifications, say, yes, we deliver to that standard as a minimum. And then the sector, allied sectors, the individual employers, deployers know that where a qualification has a SIMSPA logo, that it has gone through, you know, a suitably robust process to say it's a good. One. So, and that's what and that's what we did. It took us four years to do that. And then, more importantly, I think Robert, um, which is slightly different to predecessor organisations, we didn't write the standards. We facilitated the writing of the standards, and we invited the sector to talk about. What is a contemporary set of standards required for PT or fitness or health or lifeguarding, as opposed to you'll get what you're given? So employers and operators could say, do you know what? My business model has really moved. So PT or Group X or something like that, as an example, were very, very technically oriented before. I could be absolutely amazing and understand anatomy and physiology and all sorts of stuff. But if I didn't really have the requisite soft skills and, and understand behaviour change, I wasn't a particularly effective PT. So that was, you know, input from the sector and those standards will be revisited. So. So we were, so we, we set about that five years ago and we've now written all, all but every occupation. We've now um, been approached by a couple of other sectors, outdoor learning, for example, which is great. And also they are. For those members who want to understand where regulation works, you will have heard of Ofqual and Ofsted. Well, Ofqual regulate how qualification holders manage their um, organisation in terms of good practice, learner-centric, etc. But they have a framework, and that framework now adopts the professional standards. So, as a sector we have our footprint there that's understood and regulated as well so and we add you know we, we add a little bit more value to that so that a purchaser so a lifeguard or somebody who wants to become a duty manager or whatever you can plot your career now around those professional standards and say okay what do i need to go to the next job or or i don't you know it doesn't need to be vertical could be horizontal i can go onto the sims website and i know where, where i'm going to get good value and I also know that my next employer will be expecting to see that I hold that qualification with that quality mark. Um, and training providers, of course, who meet those standards, it just means we're constantly raising the bar as a sector. 
and therefore go back to that sort of political stuff that we we're talking about earlier and how important we are to society we can really really hold our own in terms of how we're underpinned so that is in essence um what we do but for me it's about careers and understanding that um people within our sector are professional so you know i i have some real sympathy for general managers and duty managers and leisure centers for example and in sport you know you are in fact expected to be an expert in hr and there's a chartered institute for that and in marketing and there's a chartered institute for that and in finance and there's a chartered institute for that and so it goes on we are multifaceted, multi-skilled, multi-talented individuals, but not really understood mm-hmm. as the professional that we are. And therefore, I think it's essential that a chartered institute is set up as it has been to make good um, that reputation. So, you know, when you're in the pub and you explain to somebody, I'm a general manager of a leisure centre or I run a sport, the reaction is not, you know, show us your muscles. It is, wow, that's pretty impressive. You're a super qualified, competent person. So that, for me, is something I'm personally passionate about. I think we owe that to our people. Great. Okay. Well, obviously, the message, therefore, is for anybody listening to to seek you out and and uh, and, and join up and get that professional standard that uh, that is internationally recognised. Do, do you have an equivalent overseas or? How does that work? Yeah, in fitness in particular, Robert, yeah, we have a, uh, an MOU with um, Europe Active and E-Reps. Um, despite Brexit, we still manage to maintain relations there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, you know, again, E-Reps will recognise the symptom professional qualification overseas. Great. OK. Um, so, obviously, five years ago, spin forward to, to March, 2020 how, how, how was the what would that have been the previous four years going and and then how did life suddenly change on the 23rd of March when uh, when we went into lockdown can you can you remember what it was like pre-covid and how things were going no 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 <laughs> recollection whatsoever um <clears throat> no seriously it's hard to it's hard to remember what occupied your day, really? I mean, I was inordinately busy. I've got an exceptional team who are inordinately busy. And yet this thing hit, and we seem to be even more busy. You know, it's hard to know how we found the time or bandwidth, really, for any of us. I know it's not just the stuff of Sims, but I mean, everybody I talk to in the sector, and I speak to people every day, it feels like I described it to somebody, you know, when you God, I'm so busy, I don't there's not enough hours in the week. That well, that was pre-COVID, right? And that feels like, you know, Usain Bolt he's managed to do hundred meters in whatever it is, nine point six or whatever it is. You know, if we asked ourselves the question, do you think we could do it in under nine? Everybody, no, it's not possible. But you know, we seem to find time to be busier. We seem to be quicker and, you know, it makes you wonder just how quick somebody's going to clear 100 metres. It it never ends. But um, but we adapted really, really quickly. We, we had a super quick turnaround um, internally. And because we work with so many employers um, in the sector and we have so many members, it was really easy to identify what our focus is, which is how are we going to support this sector and the individuals working in it 
what in, in over the next few months is what we thought and then you get to July and you know I remember saying well you know I think this thing's here till sort of September maybe even Christmas you know so how do we continue to harness partnerships and value and benefits and information and guidance let's just keep getting info out there so very very quickly um we, we had a we had a conversation we, we decided that we work on sort of four pillars really one was to be agile um and i was kind of guessing at that robert if i'm honest but it's it, it seems to be the word that sums up how well we've been able to respond to the sector um so agile present um profile and and supportive they were the four things we wanted to do and it was completely employer and employee centric so you know it was it's they sound like little things robert but you know every time a, a change was made you know like um we're in lockdown or we came out of lockdown and we're into tears and stuff like that you know we work very very collaboratively with um partners such as uk activity sales um but specifically sport england and government and we're able to say, right, our members, the workforce, are going to ask these questions. Please answer them. So we were, you know, we were oven ready the next day. Once the announcement was made at five o'clock at Downing Street, we were able to ask as many questions as we possibly could on behalf of the workforce to say, this is what you can do, what you can't do, what you should do, etc. But also push for our sector to make sure that we were heard and not overlooked. Um, so you know things like that then we've got you know we've got multiple partners who work with us who provide products and when we created the stronger together hub which still exists by the way um we we, we said to people look if you've got a product that helps the sector back on its feet can we have it and can we share it and do you promise not to charge for it um we we had a queue of people it was purely altruistic supportive we can help people develop online, we can help people train, we can do some online stuff, blah, blah, blah. And it, we were inundated, thankfully. We were able to harness all of those products and added value and just say, for those of you who are in furlough and wondering what your future looks like, there is stuff here, masses of stuff that will keep you motivated, that will keep you um, in learning, keep your profile sharp, but also work ready, etc. Um, including some of the really boring stuff, you know, if, if, I'm sure most of the population never thought it would go on the government website and look at guidance. And now that it has, has worked out, it's never an easy read. Uh, just a translation service that we provide saying, right, let's take the government stuff and put it in, you know, plain English. So that agility and that presence um, and that support was very important. And we managed to do it very, very quickly. We managed to turn that around in, within 10 days of the lockdown. Fantastic. One thing that I wanted to pick up there is you you talked about um, Usain Bolt and, you know, there are a huge number of analogies within sport, you know, Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile and, and how many people have subsequently gone on to just completely ignore that barrier now and and I suppose one of the things that's talked a lot about in sport and I, I wonder if 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 you found this within your organization is ultimately it comes down to mindset so yeah. once you've realized that something is achievable it's a lot easier to strive for and and, and to achieve being it being a very competent person driven individual how have you built that within your organization to 
to ultimately get everyone to accept that this is for whatever however long the the normal situation now and that we just need to push on and we need to respond and rise to the challenge that's brought us because that's ultimately the probably the biggest challenge for any leader at the moment isn't it yeah um i think we were uh we had a bit of a head start robert to be honest um because for me for me um you know, there are a number of sayings that I adopt in my leadership style, but, you know, the, the, there's one that's really, really overused, but it's true, which is culture eat strategy for breakfast. Now, we embedded um, and still remain totally wed to our culture internally. So we, we're a very flat organisation. Um, we, we have a mantra internally, you know, you fall and I'll catch you. So nobody is better, less, higher um, than anybody else. We treat all of our team as grown-ups. So, for example, you know, our, our staff handbook, we tore it up five years ago. We just ripped it up and said, you know, things like annual leave, we don't have an annual leave policy. It's just unlimited. You can take as much leave as you want, um, provided you get your job done. You know, if it takes you 20 hours to do the job, well done. It takes you 50 hours. Some, sometimes that happens, but we respect you. Um, you know, things like expenses, policies, mobile phones, all that sort of stuff, you know, treat it as though it was your own. Um, so so, so we, we worked very, very hard on culture and we never stopped revisiting it. So, you know, I, I'm a great believer of having a great team isn't luck. You know, you have to really, really work hard at it. So in in some respects, we've, we had a bit of a head start, really, because uh, our team, you know, to a man and a woman cutting through the middle, they've got symptoms there and they care deeply about the members and our partners. So um, I've been astounded um, by that. However, it's not, you know, it's not been without its challenges, Robert. You know, this whole shift from, you know, our sector is a very sociable sector. You know, there's the nature of it, we're sporty, um, we're very team oriented so to be forced into isolation as we all have been has been quite tough we work very very hard at maintaining um the social bit so that um you know it's all about resilience um and we we want a high performing team because we need to perform at that level to make sure that we are there for the sector but equally we want to break people so the social side of it has been quite a challenge for us. I mean, we were able to step, send stuff out and kick people right up. But, you know, a lot of my team are really quite young and still live at home. And, you know, they're getting up and then switching the laptop on in the same room. I mean, it, you know, we really have worked hard on making sure that people get out. They stay active. They have appropriate levels of breaks. We are in constant contact. You know, we... We don't make decisions for our team. We say, how you know, how are you doing? What's your diary like? Should we all just like switch off 12 to 1 every day? And we, yes, let's do that. And um, we've got a few social clubs. So it, uh, like everybody else, we've been constantly adapting. Um, but equally, just motivated by having a sector on the other side. You know, it's a real driver for us. And, um, you know, that it... We're very can do, you know, there's a, there's a saying that I use a lot, you know, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. And so there's a 
kind of strong you can in our uh, in our office. Um, but we have, you know, I, I have worried about the team a lot. You know, their mental resilience, their ability to keep working at this pace and this rate is not sustainable. Um, so it's been, it, you know, it's been important that we've been able to reinforce some of that culture that I talked about. Take the time you need. <clears throat> um, make sure that we get the best you, etc. Um, you know, and it's a real juggle, it's a real balance, as you know. When yeah. you're a passionate bunch of people who don't want to let the sector down, they they do tend to push themselves. <clears throat> I've done a, I've done a few things, a few of these, Tara. Now, and and what strikes me is that everyone I've spoken to quite rightly puts, you know, your team and 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 individuals before ourselves but what 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 are you what do you do to make sure that you're okay and and that you're looking after you because the chances are nobody probably else will um and it's really important that you know as as a chief exec who's going to be effective at the job that you also need to reflect on your own well-being and your own and your own strengths and and how, how so how how does who who looks after you yeah, that's a good one. Well, I mean, first of all, I've got a fabulous board. I'm blessed with a brilliant board. But you're right. The reality is at Chief Exec, you are fairly isolated. So you, you, you do have to be a bit of a grown-up as well about your own capability. And I must admit, in that first three months, I remember having a conversation with a couple of people, a couple of other CEOs in the sector. And we were reacting so much. I mean, there were just so many unknowns and it wasn't just us, you know, government didn't know what was going on. And we, we sort of came up for air, three of us came up for air and then we worked out that actually we, we'd all work something like 50 days straight without a day off. Um, and the number of hours we'd worked on each of those days, plus the intensity of what we were working on was ridiculous. And I remember sending a text out to a few CEOs saying, you know, take some time to relax this weekend. You deserve it. And we go again next week. Look after yourselves. Uh, which elicited some interesting responses, you know, you know, from the obvious, like, thank you for just saying that. And I remember saying, well, I'm Simpsburg, so I'm the people person. Like, it better come from me. Um, but also, you know, some others saying, I'm exhausted. I, I need to refresh and rethink about how I'm going to do that. And I did too. I was thinking, I'm just going to kill myself here and this is no good to anybody. And also, that's not the sort of leading by example that any of us should be doing. So I just did little things, Robert, really. I decided to look at my diary and my workflow, and which I, I, I picked this actually, this piece of advice up from Tim Hollingsworth, who's um, CEO of Sport England. And then pick off only the things that the things that only I can do. That was key. Do that first, and then stuff that needed to get done but could be done by others was then to just make sure you delegated fairly evenly, rather than try and do it all yourself. I have blocked out every single day, twelve to one, to take my three labs out, um, and. You know, but equally, you know, I do have to work weekends still, not every weekend, but I'm not beating myself up about it. I felt guilty at one stage thinking this is too much. I can't work. And then guilty if I didn't do it. Actually, it, you know, guilt doesn't sort it. 
being more effective in the week will, uh, but accepting that sometimes we're going to have to because of the unique nature of the situation. Um, and, you know, I'm the boss, so sometimes that's what happens. Um, so, yeah, I've really changed my mindset into sticking to my lane, focusing the stuff that only I can impact, uh, making sure I share the work, collaborating more. That's been a real key, talking to other organisations, saying, look, do we need actually all need to be doing this right now, prioritising better? Um, so, yeah, I work very hard at it. You know, I must admit, I get the odd week, and I'm not, not as good this week as one such. But um, then, then I look at my diary and think, no, that's not, I can't do that. So clear it out again, you know, and be sensible about how much you can do. Because, I, you know, I have been exhausted sometimes, and that's no good for any of us. I'm sure you've been through the same, Robert. Yeah, and, and, and I... Uh, the interesting thing for me is that it it's really again trying to trying to turn your mind off which i think is is important that you have other activities because you know sometimes it's 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 the most weirdest thing where you uh, sometimes you go to bed and i can't sleep because my mind's just and and i do i call that working i wouldn't class that as hours logged but obviously it's stuff going on in my head that and and then you need a a mechanism that takes you out of that. And and I like like you try and walk my dog every single day because it gets me outside, it gets me in the fresh air. It it's that space where I just try and forget about everything because I know that my focus is on the welfare of of, of our dog. And I think that's really important. So so whatever it is, I think you need to develop some kind of mental health coping strategy to 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 try and alleviate yeah. the pressure. Thank you for sharing that. Some great tips in there, and 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 let's try and let's try and move forward a little bit because I'm conscious that COVID has been such a dominant force and and has impacted in 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 ways that that will last a lifetime and the lot lots of learning to be to be to be um, developed as as a result of this. But into a more positive uh, viewpoint in terms of coming out of COVID and and ideally by the end or by Easter or whenever it may be, but certainly hopefully 2021 is a year where we can start to have some transition back into what life should be like, which is very social and 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 getting fit and getting active again. And so what are your thoughts on how your organisation will transition going forward and what are the positive benefits that you've taken that you'll keep going forward with? And, and try and build from this point onwards. Yeah, okay, well, let me just let me just start by saying, and we were talking about this earlier, weren't we, on every webinar or meeting, I mean, now I, I, I get asked the question, you know, as CEO of Simsbur, um, what do you think the future holds? Are we gonna be okay? You know, some real anxiety out there amongst operators and, our workforce, you know, really concerned, you know, it's pretty dire on the other side. So let, so let me just start by saying, Robert, I think we're going to be absolutely fine. I honestly do. Um, we will recover. We, you know, we're an incredibly resilient sector um, and we will trade out of this. So I, I mean, no doubt about it. You know, there will be some casualties, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as stark as other sectors at all. And there's some real strong evidence 
from the ONS that says that whilst our sector retail hospitality will be hit the hardest, it's our sector that will recover quickest. And, you know, let me add some data to that. People want to get back into leisure centres. 76% of those surveyed in the Active Net survey recently said they'll come back straight away. You know, and we can't actually look after 76 because when we do open, there are going to be some restrictions, right? So um, I've got no doubt about it. Pools will reopen. People want to get swimming again. So lifeguards will have jobs. Um, uh, I think lots of uh, spectator sport, you know, people need a pickup. You know, there's something brilliant about our sport for galvanising, you know, a happy society. It, you know, it will return. I mean, no doubt about it. So, you know, famous last words, but those listening, you know, you heard it here, we'll be okay. So um, that's the first thing I'd like to say. The second thing is that I think, you know, that if the sector is learning, and I, and I can feel that it's learning, Robert, you know, I think people have, it's almost become a bit of a reset you know inadvertently whilst the sector has been closed whilst lots of organizations have been thinking well I've got to pay the bills and where do I access furlough and all the rest of it it's also given some organizations big and small the bandwidth to say right now what am I going to do differently here to make sure that this is sustainable and remain successful and, and you know actually we've got a bit more time to think about because we were so busy before to think about what what is it I operate that's important to this local area for example <clears throat> where are my strengths where are my 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 long-term gains here for the local you know wh whether it's local education whether it's tackling inequalities you know I I have a role to play this organization has a role to play and I, I'm able now to reprioritize that and also because it's 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 almost a bit wartime, isn't it? What we've been through, and what that brings is collaboration, and and collaboration and cooperation in the last year I've seen in spades. So so if you're an operator, for example, you know you you, you might not have enjoyed a particularly um, visible or 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 frequent relationship with your local authority. You've been forced to now, you know. So. If you're a chief executive of a local authority, you're kind of looking at two boxes here. You've got Peter and Paul, right? And you've got in 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 Paul, you've got street cleaning, collecting the bins, digging the greys, all the stuff you have to do, right? And then over here in Peter, you've got leisure centres, libraries, you know, and, and it's going to be tough for those guys, and they're going to have to rob the Peter box to continue to pay for the Paul box. Now, what I've seen is that lots of employers and employers and operators said how do we turn ourselves from that peter into that pool box how do we make ourselves an essential service how do i get into the mindset of that local authority ceo and say do you know what this is going to be tough and we can make a contribution to this um you know there's lots of data for every pound that a local authority invests in its leisure facilities and its products and services you get four pound return in terms of um, health and social value so um, in that respect, I think I see improved relationships. I think I, I see more refined thinking. I see some great leaders stepping up now to 
So, okay, what's our purpose for the long term, not just in reaction to COVID? Um, so I think we've got a very buoyant future. I think we've got a tricky year ahead, let's be honest. Um, we're not out the woods yet. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, that, that there is, you know, there's another saying, isn't there, that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You know, if you don't sort of go back and look at what we did before and, and sort of what would I do differently? Um, I, you know, I, I think I see a lot of that. I get a real sense of that. Um, and of course, nothing, you know, nothing can be changed until it's faced. And that's what COVID is, has done. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're in good shape. Um, uh, Simsburg is, you know, with Sport England have just announced their 10 year strategy. Um, it's a breath of fresh air. It talks about whole system approach, which is precisely what this sector needs. It's harnessing all of um, our, you know, component parts into some, you know, a, a, a sort of long term impactful society change, societal change that, you know, which will benefit the country forever. So I think, you know, I think take COVID out of it, we're in pretty good order as a sector. And, um, you know, if nothing else, you know, take this away. When we were locked down, what did we hear? Four things. Stay in, protect the NHS, save lives and go out and get some exercise once a day for an hour. <laughs> you know, we've heard that, right? So in terms of getting in the mindset and people, People have been told repeatedly that people who are fitter and healthier will have a stronger resilience to this and other viruses. So, and people, when they've been locked down and isolated, have worked out just what it is that they miss. And it's going for a walk. It's walking to work. You know, it's running for the bus even. You know, it's, we, we, we notice, don't we, as humans, when we don't do a bit. So I think in terms of profile, our sector um, has probably, it's, it's going to sound a little bit um, insensitive given the circumstances, but kind of enjoyed a higher profile um, during this pandemic. And it needs to seize that now uh, and move that on into the consciousness of the public. Um, and look at the model. You know, let's be honest, we service 15% of people who've already decided that activity is good for them. Have a look at those that started to engage and how they engage with exercise and activity, small or large, and take people on a journey. Don't sell it, don't shove it down people's throats. Take people on a journey. And that's the biggest opportunity I think it yields and understand what it does to education and attainment, what, understand what it does to, you know, stubborn, inequalities, health and, and and so on. And and think about this in a more strategic, broader, impactful way rather than margin and bottom line. That is a huge opportunity. Brilliant, Tara. That's 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 fantastic. And 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 I you know what you've just said there, I don't think people really have, have, have thought through about the government directive to go and get exercise. And and that kind of leads back to the your comment earlier about the 2015 where the government said that sport needs to be at the heart of an active nation and I think the message is exactly the same isn't it whatever happens however we move forward sport exercise uh, and a healthy nation is only going to bring 
um, enormous benefits for us as a country. And, and that's something that you as and everybody that's lobbying government talking to government needs to keep reinforcing that message because it is so on point and so important that nobody ever forgets that yeah i'd agree okay thank you very much i've got one final question which is a question i ask all of my guests um and that is what is the best thing about being chief exec of simspa Oh, what a question. There's a million things, Robert. I'm good. This is going to sound really, really cheesy, but the best thing is my team. I absolutely love my team. They're just belters. And um, we, we, had a, we had a couple of team days the other day. We were talking about what it's going to feel like when we get back, you know, into the office and the, the desperation for everybody to see each other and, you know, have a pint or not. Um, it's just overwhelming. I'm sort of tempted to book a hotel and just let them run around, you know, and hug each other and have a few beers and have a game of football or something because it's just, um, they're just a really good bunch to work for. Um, and also, I, you know, the other thing as well, there's something quite unique about Simspa and what it does is it's making, it's supporting this sector to be the best that it can be. You know, and there's something really quite nice about being able to do that for a living. What's your job? Oh, I really, really help a sector be ace and understood <laughs> and, understood and appreciated. Um, you know, the, the, our sector, Robert, is made, it's got stuff in it, right? It's got, it's got brilliant stadia and it's got, you know, lottery funded shiny tennis courts and basketball courts and leisure centres and we've got treadmills and handhelds and tech and things make noises and they shine and light up and all of that. We're amazing in terms of our footprint and none of that works without people. You know, people want coaching, people want instructors, people respond to a person sat in front of them, motivating them, encouraging them. And so, you know, to work in an environment where you support that lot, that's ace. I love it. Absolutely love it. Lovely. Thank you for that, Tara. It's a great end. And, and I completely echo that from a perspective of, you know, we live in a country where, to be honest, the climate's not particularly great. And yet people still get out there every day, rain, sleet, snow, sunshine, whatever, and they get on with it because it's absolutely their passion and it's built into their yeah. DNA. And, and, and that's why we all love what we do. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for taking the time uh, to chat with me today. Uh, thank you to everyone who uh, has listened to this podcast. And remember that all our podcasts are available on the channel uh, and you can find that through Apple, Spotify and Google. Uh, if you don't already, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and then you can keep up to date with all the podcasts that we've got planned. In next week's episode, we'll be speaking to Jane Nickerson, who's the chief executive of Swim England. And again, I'll be talking to Jane about how she's led her team through this pandemic and what her plans and hopes are for 2021 and beyond. So thank you very much, Tara. Take care and goodbye. Thanks, Robert. See you soon.